Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Now, look, I'm going to clear this up at the beginning. Last week I wasn't here. That's fine. That's part of the process. I did, though, listen to the episode. Great episode, by the way. Thought thought it was fantastic. Didn't didn't love the bit where you and Chris maybe alluded to yourselves as the dream team. I mean, did I, felt, I, um, I don't I don't remember listening to it that way. But I don't know. I felt a little hurt. Anyway, I'm going to move on and introduce our guest today, who is Meb Faber, the co-founder and CIO of Cambria Investments, a quantitative, quantitative, quantitative boutique based in Los Angeles, America. And Meb was fantastic. Like he was, he was really good. Um, gave us some great insights into a sort of, a, I guess, a, a pretty big mistake he made early on in his career, but also. Um, as a sort of prolific author, blogger, tweeter, podcaster himself. He has lots of views on markets and, and sort of general mistakes that he sees out there. And, and he shared lots of those, which I think we, we got quite a lot from, Frank. Yeah, I, I, I really liked Mev a lot. I think he definitely takes the award for most relaxed guest we've had on the podcast. Quick, clearly that West Coast lifestyle is, has been good for his coolness. Um, he had none of that corporate facade about him. It was a real authenticity. He believed what he was saying. He had a bunch of lessons to share. He's a perfect guest. Yeah. Wow. That, I mean, that is an endorsement. That is a real. That's a real tease there. Not, not um, to say our previous guests weren't perfect, of course. But I, I think, I think, without giving it away, he got hit harder than any of our other guests. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like effectively, and we'll hear this in two minutes. But you know, he he got wiped out at about the age of, but luckily. At a pretty young age, so so he gave himself some time to uh, build back and uh, build back better, I guess. Well, after that quite lofty billing from Frank, let's see if he lives up to it. Here are the mistakes of Meb Faber. This is nice to talk about because we often say to be a great investor, you have to be a great loser. And part of the reason behind that is that there's really only two states on markets. A market could be at an all-time high, like the U.S. stock market is currently, or it's in some form of drawdown. Now, that drawdown may only be a few percentage points from all-time high. It may be 10, 20, 40, 60, 80, 90, like some markets are. Um, and so you're either at that sort of promised land of all-time highs, or, or you're somewhere in the dark depths of despair and agony of a drawdown. But that's normal. That's a part of investing. So um, unlike... I was saying Twitter, where everyone is 100% batting average and every trade is a 10-bagger. Uh, that's not the reality of markets, you know. Um, and you really have to come to that understanding to survive, which is what we say is the most, uh, most important compliment you could give anyone in our industry, but also anyone that's an individual investor, is just simply staying in the game. And the biggest mistake is you can make is, you get all your chips taken away and you can no longer bet. And unfortunately, uh, that can be devastating, not just to your portfolio and economic well-being, but to your psyche as well. So the best thing you can do is learn the dumb mistakes when you're young and have no money, uh, which I did. And often that informs your path. And so um, when you start to have a number of scars, uh, it starts to, um, you know, you, you only, I have a four-year-old, so he only, touches the stove a couple times to realize, you know, that's not something he wants to do again. And so for me, uh, during the really great bubble of I my mean, if career, it, if it gets like two or three times, if it gets like four or five times, I think yeah. you've got different problems, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. Um, 
you know, I said uh, early in my career, the great bubble, the internet bubble, the dot-com bubble is when I really graduated university and, and uh, you see some parallels of today. Uh, I certainly thought I was a genius. Uh, the next coming of Stevie Cohen, Drucker Miller and Paul Tudor Jones combined into one. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of high flying dot coms and biotech stocks in the day. And, and I certainly learned, um, you know, the, the discretionary trading path was not one for me. Uh, I learned that pretty quickly when uh, I learned about six lessons in one trade. I'll tell you about um, one of which was a biotech strangle or a straddle. I can't remember at this point in the options uh, lingo. That means there was a biotech company called Biogen and they had a drug that uh, announcement, which was established what date they were going to announce uh, some some critical trial news. I think I think it was actually FDA approval. If you go back far enough, this would have been early 2000s. And uh, it would either send the stock up, I don't know, 80% or down 50. And uh, I had a thesis at the time. And so uh, the thesis was, all of the portfolio managers that own this stock are going to have to hedge it going into this because they're probably not going to want to bet the farm on this outcome. So they may not hedge their entire book, but they'll hedge some, which will cause the volatility to increase into the actual event. So you'll get some appreciation on the straddle or strangle. And then I had set it up so that if it got approved, I would roughly break even. Uh, if it didn't get approved, which I didn't think it was, I was a biotech uh, undergrad in a different I lifetime. was going to say, you have, a, you have a background in biotech, mm -hmm. right? So it was that sort of... Yeah, I was a biotech informing uh, engineering undergrad, genetics. Uh, in a different lifetime, we'd be doing this podcast about CRISPR and some other things, but gene therapy, but uh, the path diverged partially probably due to this trade. Anyway, uh, long story, long painful story short, uh, the thesis for the trade was this was not going to get approved, in which case I'd make a lot of money. If it did get approved, I was protected. The date comes around. And by the time the actual announcement was happening, the first leg of the thesis, the volatility would increase happened. So the money, it was, it had already, I think, doubled in profitability. So a wise trader would look back on that and say, maybe I'll take a few chips off the table, uh, book some profit, let the rest ride. Um, some in the gambling world call that playing with the house's money. I didn't do that. I, said, I wanted to really let it all ride. And so sure enough, the drug gets approved. Again, not the worst thing in the world. The stock goes up a bunch. I'm slightly in the money. And the correct thing to do as a trader, you're, you're seeing there's a lot of lessons along the way. Uh, the event was over, right? So my thesis had played out. It was time to close the trade. But instead, I said, well, I'll give it a few days. I think that maybe you'll get some tailwinds of, uh, you know, people piling into the stock. And then about a day or two later, the company decided to pre-announce earnings for totally unknown reason. Uh, they had no reason to do so. And it sent the stock right back down to the strike price. And uh, I lost all my money. So uh, there's a lot of lessons embedded there. You know, one is, you don't. I didn't enjoy eating mustard sandwiches for a year. Um, but do you, do you think do you think you were you were just too close to it? You're given your education, the background you were coming from? Was it an emotional investment? No, I think the, the actual the, the thesis for the trade, which was uh, a pretty thoughtfully constructed trade, 
didn't line up with the actual behavior. Like, so, so we, we, we say to a lot of investors, we say 99.9% of investors I talk to spend all their time on the buy decision. Is gold a good buy? Are emerging markets cheap? How much should I put into Bitcoin? On and on and on. And we asked a, a poll on Twitter, he said, do you establish your sell rule when you establish your trade? And the vast majority of people don't. They buy something, then they become emotionally attached to it, and then they wing it. You know, they say, see how this goes, which is the absolute worst, because all of a sudden then you have an attachment to this position you didn't have before. I had actually intelligently set out criteria for the sell and why I would exit, but then I just overrode it. It made no sense. It became an emotional attachment. Was that, I was greedy. Was that, um, yeah, was it just greed? Was that the ultimate mistake? Um, I think I think when you see a lot of investors and this plays into other areas of personal finance, it plays into um, you know housing, it plays into uh, almost anything that involves personal finance. I think uh, gambling is a big one. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of people out there that um, there's an old great Ed Sakota quote says something along the side of um, people get what they want out of markets. Some people uh, seem to actually want to lose. And I would say and so they get that out of markets. I wouldn't say want to lose. They want to gamble. And so uh, they want the hope of the roll of a dice or flip of a coin. And so in my scenario, the trade had played out. The thesis was there. It's time to close the position, be done with it, move on which is also another big takeaway in, in learning is that there's always another trade and there's thousands of them every day. Uh, why everyone has to be obsessed with Tesla and Bitcoin is beyond me because there's tens of thousands of securities all around the world, a lot easier than, than focusing on the ones that are Do you successful. think, so, so there's an element of like the sort of the thrill of it as well, kind of, you know, it's not so much the greed, but the, the adrenaline, the, the, Probably, yeah. you know, I mean, again, this is 21 year old me. Uh, so um, I was going to say, that was my next question was, was how old were you? And yeah. I mean, you mentioned sort of eating mustard sandwiches. I mean, 21 year olds don't have typically tons of money. I mean, it's, it's I was living in San Francisco at the time. And that was also the decimation of the internet winter. So this was like 01 or 02. So it was like the, the biggest boom and bubble and then the absolute just nuclear winter afterwards. And so it's not like there was thousands of jobs just you could walk up to like today or in, in the late 90s and other points. It, it, uh, it was dark times. And so the problem was is that it had been a well-crafted investment five, 10 years before that for me of many, many trades, a well-thought-out approach, on and on and on. And then just one ill-conceived, foolish idea blew up everything. And so, you know, there's a lot of lessons here. We mentioned the buy and sell rules, having a plan. We talk to investors a lot on the on the asset allocation side of things on our blog and podcast and say, you know, do you have a written investing plan? The vast majority don't. And that's crazy if you think about it. Uh, you know, and so having a plan, whether it's a trade or your allocation is important. Uh, position sizing. Look, that bet was fine if it was 1%, 2%, 5%, 10% of my investing capital. If it blew up, so what? It matters when it's 95%, right? That is, there's no margin for error. And you see that mistake all the time. There's something like uh, the Forex brokerages, which had to publish how many of their traders are profitable. And it was like 98% lose money because they use a ton of leverage and, and day trade. And I think you'll probably find that uh, true with, with this cycle too. 
so on and on and on. There was a lot of lessons learned, and thank God for them. You know, it goes back to the old uh, my one of my favorite comments is like the failure resume. There's a producer, I think her name's Nina Jacobson, but she's done like Pirates of the Caribbean, a bunch of very successful movies. But she talks about she keeps a resume of all the the bombs and the terrible ones too. And uh, I think that's hugely important uh, because if you look at all the older traders, the big investors, you know, they they understand the, this this concept, the humble pie, which investors get uh, spoon fed or, or bulldozer fed at some point every uh, every, you know, once in a while in markets, regardless of how smart they are. Do you think. Um in terms of where you are now, and obviously the, the firm that you set up, and you sort of mentioned at the beginning here, one thing you took from this was, you know, being a sort of discretionary trader, what wasn't for you. And so, I mean, look, you mentioned loads of lessons there, obviously. Do you think that was the biggest, that, you know, you needed to be rules-based if you were going to do this professionally, that you needed to kind of uh, take the sort of quantitative approach? It left um, a mark, that's for sure. Uh, you know, and so um, it also pushed, pushed me down a path of... of a friend describes it being, you know, getting a PhD in markets or life, but being poor, hungry and driven, you know, at that point. And so um, there was a, a, a big element of embarrassment and shame. Anyway, um, this, the, the realization that we're human and emotions play a role, you know, put me down a path. And for me, some people can do the discretionary investing. It is my absolute nightmare. I want nothing to do with having uh, emotional um, you know, Buffett and, and Munger, and this is, uh, I think, important in this part of the cycle, said, you know, it's, it's, it's not fear and greed that drive markets, but envy. And you see a tweet about somebody buying a, a dog cryptocurrency that was 10000 and now it's worth $5 billion. You know, that creates, I think, a lot of envy. You see your neighbor buying a new Land Rover, going on vacations because they, you know, bought Tesla, um, on and on. So, I wanted to have a plan. I wanted to use uh, as much potential uh, objective science and history to craft an investment approach that was thoughtful that would keep me out of the way. You mentioned uh, earlier, you said having a fully diversified portfolio is, is essential for survival. Um, if, you, if you listen to people out there in the market today, they're telling you the only thing worth owning is equities, maybe Bitcoin. Um, do you think there's still a place for a balanced portfolio with fixed income in it? So if, if you look at the history out, of markets, every investment has its moment in the sun and, and moment in the shade. And uh, it's hard to become asset class agnostic and to have a view of the world, which is, I think, what you have to be as an investor to come in with an icy you know, veins of, of looking at assets and not having an attachment. And look, equities are great. We say there's no better way to, to get wealthy than to be the owner, uh, you know, whether you start your own company, whether you invest in companies, but you start to see all the emotional attachments creep in there. So equities, we always tell people, if you're gonna invest, you gotta at least understand history to come up with a base case foundation. And so equities, you can't find an equity market that hasn't declined by two thirds. You know, most uh, have declined by 75, 80% plus. Um, so there's quite a bit of volatility. Look around the world and there's a handful that are still down that much uh, from the financial crisis. And they can go a long time going nowhere 
and or underperforming bonds. So a year, the U.S. stock market, which has been the darling of this cycle, it wasn't the 10 years prior. Uh, when I graduated college, 2000 to 2009 was, was one of the worst equity markets in the world. But that usually sets the stage for the outperformance we see today. Um, but the U.S. equity market at one point last year has had basically the same performance as U.S. bonds for 40 years. Not one, two, three, four, five years, 40. The U.S. has been outperforming. That hasn't happened since 1990s. Before that, didn't happen since 1910s. So uh, it's actually quite a rare situation. Now, if you look at the 45 investable countries around the world, most Americans put most of their money in their stock market. Most of the Japanese do it. They put most money in their market, the Brits, the Aussies, on and on. And that home country bias is such a foolish idea. Uh, everyone thinks they understand their local uh, stock market just like they would their, their local football team or uh, baseball team. But in reality, um, it's a false sense of security. And so having a global diversification gives you that balance. It's important right now, globally, because my country, the US, is one of the most expensive in the world. Uh, it's knocking on, if you look at the long-term 10-year PE ratio, it's knocking on uh, the highest it's ever been in history. But going back to the topic of this entire podcast, value, technical term, has just absolutely stunk it up for the past decade. I mean, it has been garbage. It's been uh, both within the US, Cross countries, uh, value has been a terrible place to be. Now, part of that is you're seeing the valuation spread get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, you're seeing value managers go out of business. You're seeing short sellers are virtually extinct at this point, um, trying to, to get um, step in front of a bulldozer on a lot of these high flying growth stocks. But you look back in history, and this is you know rinse repeat. You go back to the uh, radio companies of the mid-century, the electronic companies, the railroads, the utilities. My favorite is in the in the uh, 1920s. Boring ass utilities could not think of something that it could be less interesting. Were the tech stocks of our grandparents' generation? They hit a P ratio of 60 uh, in the Roaring Twenties. So you can have a bubble in just about anything. So, um, but value being a great place to be, you got to be a good loser not just for assets like stocks we mentioned earlier versus bonds, but also styles like value or tilts away from something like a, a market cap weighted index. Do you, do you not subscribe to the view that's out there that the world is fundamentally changing around us at the moment with the shift towards net zero targets? I mean, we're talking COP26 is on right now. It's probably not big news in the States, but it's pretty big news over here in Europe. And do you not subscribe to the view that things are just changing so fast that there are just some industries that are cheap because they should be cheap? You know, that things are moving I, I, very quickly. I agreed with everything you said until the va till the last qualifier. Um, it's absolutely changing. And um, let me explain why this game is so hard. So one of my favorite papers is called Capitalism Distribution, but there's some variants. Bess Bessem Binder murdered that explanation. Uh, all these studies have shown the statistical return of stocks. And over time, they show that um, power laws, you know, like if you think about like earthquakes, where a 4.0 earthquake is 10 times the size of a 3.0, 5.0 is 10 times the size of 4, 6 is 10 times the size. So it gets log logarithmically more impactful the bigger it gets. Well, it turns out that's true in stock markets. And um, the vast majority of all the stocks returns are delivered by a tiny proportion of actual companies. So about two thirds of stocks underperform like the S&P 500 index over time. 
about half essentially have no rate of return over their lifetime and about a quarter straight up go to zero. And it's like five, 10% generate all the returns. Now you can take that and there's a couple of takeaways. One, going back to the topic of this podcast, like you're gonna be a good loser if you're gonna be a stock picker because most stocks are gonna underperform the index. A very few actually generate all the returns. And so you can market cap weight that, uh, but also you can be concentrated in those companies. I think it would surprise a lot of people, but historically, if you look at the best performing securities over time, tech is actually underrepresented uh, historically. But you go back in the cycles over time, there's two parts to this. There's investing in the cheap stuff, and then there's avoiding the expensive. And the last 120 years have been constant creative destruction. Uh, you know, railroads, TV, microprocessors, internet, metaverse. I, I have trouble even saying that right now. Um, you know, and so uh, everyone's always excited about what the future may hold. Um, you know, the challenge is eventually that gets incorporated into prices and, and distinguishing between a good business and a good investment or stock uh, is hard. I mean, if you look at one of the best performing sectors in the world this year, energy, Energy has gone from anywhere between a third of, of the U.S. market cap to 2%, and now it's up. Last year, it hit like 2%. No one wants energy. Uh, huge drawdowns, and I think it's up 50% this year. So I think, you know, to me, it's always rinse, repeat. Um, if everything is, I, the assumption is everything is always going to be different, and do you have an investing approach that can adapt to that no matter what happens? And if you're a market cap-weighted, Global indexer, God bless you, because you're going to end up holding all these companies and they go up. It's the ultimate trend following portfolio. I don't think any market cap investors would admit to that. But uh, but the ability to own more of a stock as it goes up and own less of it as it goes down, you're eventually going to own uh, the the killer companies of tomorrow, no matter what. So we talked we talked we, we talked a little bit about mistakes. Uh, let's 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 hear about some times that came up. Millhouse, you you said you launched a real estate ETF in the in the height of the pandemic. That more clearly a, an amazing decision. Uh, what about from a personal level, investment decisions that you've made that have really worked out? I mean, let's go, let's go back. Let's take the the, the way back machine. Um, I'll, I'll tell a few stories. One is you know the very first academic paper I wrote. Uh, which is now like one of the most downloaded papers in all the academic databases, which is um, endless frustration to my wife, who's an academic. Um, you know, it, uh, it was published at a time pre-financial crisis. So if you know Meb of 10 years ago, you probably came into uh, following my work as trend following. And trend following as an investment methodology, um, not universally widespread, uh, we probably have one of the biggest outlier allocations to trend following of any investment manager in the world. So our default portfolio is put half in, buy, uh, half in a global buy and hold portfolio with tilts towards value, and the other half is in trend following. We call it Trinity portfolio. And trend following, um, for those who aren't familiar, let's distill it to a simplest, is wanting to invest in markets as they go up and not be invested as they go down. You know, lofty goal sounds simple, but it's not, you know, but, but the reality is trying to avoid not a five or 10% loss, but to avoid the 50, 70, 90% loss, because those are the haymakers. And historically, and we demonstrated this in our paper in, in 07, 
um, if you can do that with some uh, the the long held, and this is a hundred years old material, so I didn't invent it. Same thing with value. You know, it goes back to time of Ben Graham. This goes back to time of Charles Dow. Uh, using something like a two hundred day moving average, saying we're going to be long stocks when above and out sitting in cash and bonds when below. Historically, has worked great, and it does so by keeping you out of these big losses. Now the problem comes, and this is the perfect for this podcast, is trend following has a terrible batting average. It's like baseball batting average. If you bat 300, you're crushing it. You're going to get the triple crown. But what it does is it has lots of little losses and then the big gains. And going back to the power law discussion, that's everything in our world. Uh, having these big, huge, not just grand slams, but whatever four grand slams stacked on each other would be, uh, pays for everything. Now, trend following is hard. Buy and hold and trend following are both hard. Buy and hold's hard because you do nothing and you watch your money just go down the toilet. Uh, and it's highly correlated to recessions, contractions, bear markets, the bad times. Trend following, on the flip side, usually does great during market crisis. Um, but the problem with trend following is you have lots of little losses. And people don't like that. Uh, particularly if you're, and they can go years of having poor performance relative to buy and hold. And so... Um, Big win being this paper put kind of put us on the map. Cool. Well, Franco, that was that was Meb. Um, a lot there. As he told us, I think he told us after we were recording, he has uh, he was coming down off a, off a Halloween sugar high. We recorded this uh, the day after Halloween, so he and they said he was highly caffeinated and, st and still on a sugar rush from Halloween. So um, he gave us everything he had, really. Uh, but I thought there was quite a lot in there. Yeah, loads in there, and you alluded to it at the top. But you know, he he got totally cleaned out. But what was in his favour was his age. But take nothing away from it. By the sounds of it, he'd been building up to that moment for years. Uh, it sort of reminded me of the plot of Rounders, the movie with Matt Damon, which I know you haven't seen, Alex. Shame on you. Uh, he's a gambler. Not saying Merv's a gambler, uh, and he's very calculated all the way for a long time. And then one night, he just gets overconfident, gets cleaned up cleaned out rather and similar similar narrative we'll put a link we'll put a link to mm. this film that frank loves that i've never heard of um in the uh, <laughs> in the in the article um yeah but i think i think overconfidence there it, it, it was a key part of that wasn't it and i and i think um he's very honest about that and then also yeah and to your point it does sound like he'd been doing really well for sort of five years prior to that trade going very badly wrong but overconfidence lack of diversification two kind of classic investor misbehaviors that, uh, that that we hear about quite a lot in this but clearly actually pretty good for him long term because as he said you know having discretion basically being a stock picker wasn't for him and to learn that lesson in your early 20s rather than I don't know your mid 30s mid 40s when you have a lot less time to do something about it is probably for the for the good right yeah definitely I, I wish I'd done the same really on reflection looking at how his career is mapped out but uh, you're betting everything on a single trade hardly ever advisable and what's amazing is the amount of guests come on the show who've come a cropper with options trading he was hoping for, for yeah he was hoping for volatility he got the volatility then didn't cash out then didn't cash out again when he saw it coming back down towards the strike price it hits the strike price and he loses everything uh what i liked about it though is he really well articulated the need to have a sell discipline if it breaches this level, sell. If it falls back to this level, sell. 
But it, it, as you say, it all amounts to diversification. And I honestly think that not enough people, including myself, are well diversified, you know, be that by geography or asset class. It, it certainly made me think, you know, about my reliance on equities within my portfolio. I'm too confident that I've got a 30, 40 year time horizon before before I cash out uh, in my retirement savings. I should have more fixed income. I, I listen, listen, I know I know it seems like a crazy thing to do right now with yields where they are. Who knows what comes next, though? But also, you're probably not going to retire in 70. Probably we're retiring when we're like 90 and then we're going to go work on some sort of like gene farm or something. Like, you know, you, you go all in on equities. To, I, uh, you've got a much longer time horizon than you think. We're, we're never retiring. Oh, yeah, clearly never retiring. We'll be doing this podcast until we're octogenarians. And he's the, the second guest in as many weeks to talk about the need to remove home bias. I know he wrote a kind of groundbreaking paper on it, or at least certainly something that a lot of people read. But there's so much truth to that. I know a lot of people who are too overweight UK equities here in the UK, and they've suffered for 10 years. Yeah, you say that, Frank. But I mean, obviously, if we listen to another point that Meb made, um, you know, you've, it's been bad to be in the UK for 10 years, but the next 10 might be significantly brighter. So, you know, maybe... Maybe worth sticking with that overweight for the time being and taking the pain and uh, seeing where you end up in the next decade. Just to be clear, not regulated financial advice. And on that warning, I think it's a nice note to end on. So it is goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.